0: I remember at the end of that, some of my friends taking their masks off and looking at their face and it looked like they were like years younger.
1: Hello, print friends, and welcome to Outlaw October. A month-long, deep dive into the hearts and minds of the Outlaw Printmakers. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. And this month, we're doing something a little different. It's a little exploration into one corner of the print world. Outlaw Printmakers. Who they are, what they do, and what the heck makes an outlaw an outlaw. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. I also have some exciting news for you, print friends, before we kick off today's episode. If you haven't heard already, I'm hosting a print event. In partnership with Print Austin, I'm bringing a month-long printmaking celebration to Santa Fe called What Else But Print Santa Fe. There are juried exhibitions you can apply for, and one of them, which is called the Contemporary Print, is going to be juried by the incredible Rashaun Rucker. It's a survey of contemporary printmaking, and it's going to be exhibited in Austin and Santa Fe. So check out the link in the show notes, and I can't wait to see you in beautiful Santa Fe. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. And you know they're getting in the spirit of things over here for Outlaw October. My guest this week is Dennis McNett, and Speedball is giving away a starter set of acrylic screen printing inks, and a 14-inch urethane squeegee, and an 11 by 14 Arnheim paper pad. Hello, what an amazing thing! Go check out this week's episode over on the Instagram page and see details for how to enter. In this episode, Dennis and I talk about his early art exposure through skateboard culture, how and when his prints evolved into three-dimensional sculptures, and the incredible power of shared art experiences. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to howl at the moon with Dennis McNett. Hi, Dennis. How's it going?
0: Good, good. How are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I, I really appreciate you taking some time away from spoiling your dog to have a chat with me today.
0: I <laughs> uh, proceed you asking.
1: Yeah. So I've known about your work for for quite some time. Um, you know, I think that you're a, a big presence in the printmaking world. You're doing large things, you're doing community things, you're doing innovative things. And so I'm just really excited to have a more in-depth conversation with you about how you came to your practice and and where it fits in for you. And so I'm just really chuffed to have a chat. But before we get into things, I always ask everyone to introduce themselves by just saying who you are, where you are, what you do.
0: Okay, I'm Dennis McNett. I'm in Luray, Virginia. And I've been making prints and sculptures and all sorts of things since I was a kid. So that's what I do now.
1: Awesome. And where did you grow up, and what role did art play in that part of your life?
0: I grew up in Virginia Beach, so it's it wasn't really culturally rich, like say New York or LA, you know, mm-hmm. which I ended up going to New York later. But definitely didn't wasn't art educated. wasn't That wasn't part of my upbringing either. Aside from like here's some crowns and some paper, like here your own time, right? But I I did have a (laughs) – I had a great-grandfather. I always tell this story because I think it's funny. But when I was a kid, my great-grandparents were still around, and we'd go there. And I've been drawing since I can remember. But I would draw something, and I would show my great-grandfather. And he'd go, oh, my gosh, that's a great draw. Some more. And he was blind. So I thought – I thought the drawings were magic and you could see them somehow. So I would like scramble and draw some more. Dr- look, look, and you'd see, oh my gosh, you know. So so That's I always so say sweet. he was the first kind of inspiration drawing. But Virginia Beach, like I said, wasn't very culturally rich. But uh, our our culture, what I got culture from was skateboarding. Mm. And I don't know if you want me to talk about this or do you want me to?
1: This? I would say tangent away because I, I know that skate culture is foundational to what you do, but I've actually never heard you talk really kind of depth about discovering skateboarding and kind of why you connected to it and then how that evolved in professional art making I think that's really interesting
0: okay well Virginia Beach like I said it didn't have it doesn't have like a lot there's one art museum and there's not a lot of like galleries unless it's like a gallery of like seascapes and (laughs)
1: you know Uh
0: things so everyone I grew up with either skated or surfed. so and we would surf in the summertime we would just stay in the water pretty much all all summer but as it got colder i wasn't into i'd wear a wetsuit and go out sometimes but i wasn't into it so we got into skateboarding i was never good at it you know i was never good i was never really good at anything athletic but i loved rolling around i loved it and and i always say that's where we got our our culture from you know the group of people i ran around with was we would go down to the skate shop in, in virginia beach at 17th street skate all the graphics on the bottoms of the boards. Mm-hmm. and i would be like what those man, like that's that thing's awesome and then i would try to draw it on my school notebooks and then we would get thrasher magazine and in thrasher magazine you could see the graphics and you could see the skateboarder and you could see the new tricks so we would be like well i'm into this and I'll, i'm gonna try this and, and and then you flip to the back and it would have this whole section on music mm-hmm. and at the time like in the early to mid 80s it was all punk rock so it was like my first introduction to to so punk rock so i would well i like this and i like this let me check this out and then i would listen to the to the uh, suggestions suggested music in the back of thrash magazine And I'd be like, yes, that guy's pissed and so am I. And I loved it (laughs) So I I would listen to all the stuff that was that was in there. It it was mostly like thrash, like punk. But I always say that's where we got a lot of our culture from and all the artists that were doing the boards like Pusshead did the graphic boards. And then later he did stuff for like Metallica, like their first album covers and very iconic images like you see them. You may not know who it is, but you're like, oh, I know that image. I've seen that before. Mm. Cortland Johnson did all the board graphics for Powell peralta so you would see like this the sword in the skull or you'd see like steve caballero's dragon or it was a lot of like skulls and unsavory kind of characters and i loved the the style of it like the, the graphic quality and then later when i went to community college this guy had a he had a printing press, and he was he was showing us how to do prints. And I was like, "What is this guy doing?" He's sitting there like chipping away at a piece of wood, and then he just rolls ink onto the surface, and he cranks it through this old-looking thing. I'm like, "What is he doing?" You know? And he pulls it mm-hmm. up, and it looks into all these like harsh graphic imagery that I was seeing on the bottoms of skateboards. And come to find out later, Cortland Johnson, all of his graphics were lino cuts. Mm-hmm. So, that, uh, so that once I saw that first woodcut, I was like, I'm in, I was like, I was 19 years old. I was like, this is, because mm. I would try drawing. And I remember snapping the charcoal because I was like too aggressive painting. I was too impatient to let it dry and I would make a muddy mess. But with this, I could slow down and I could get the lines that I wanted. And it had like a, it had that, it, like a carved line has energy in it. Like you're putting that, you're putting that pressure on that carved mark. And I loved it. Like, it, mm. and, it, and it translates, I feel like that energy translates to the mark. So so then I was hooked. So yeah. that was a long time ago.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's, I think there's a couple sort of significant things in there. And, you know, one, when I interview artists who I think oftentimes who are also interested in doing this, like, graphic, bold imagery, they'll talk about seeing art in the early squishy, influential days of their lives on skateboards and on. And I don't think the kids these days can understand how precious that was because they're so saturated with images and information and art and counterculture, but pre-internet. I'm I'm an 80s baby and so I have the pre-internet memories. It's there was just to see something that was outside of the mainstream, to see something that wasn't just primetime shit, comedy TV shows or or I was going to say Walmart but I don't think Walmart was as big then Woolworths I guess was the the fir- yeah. the old Walmart or something like it it really felt so precious like it felt like you were discovering something that spoke to you in a world where nothing else really did. Yeah,
0: yeah I, get, I can agree with that 100%. I mean, I I mean, same with the music. It was like you couldn't google it, you know, no. you had to go down. If I saw something in Thrasher, we had to go down and buy the tape, you know, mm-hmm. you would take money you got for Bagging groceries or cutting grass or whatever, and you'd go buy the record or the album, put it on, and uh, yeah, I, re- I remember like the first first albums I got. I got like Seven Seconds in Adolescence, and it was from the record shop, and I had no idea what it was going to sound like right. until I got it home. So yeah, you're you're absolutely right on that. It's like a lost thing, and it's there's an oversaturation of imagery, music. Which is good and bad, I think, so
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, it, it's, yeah, and I, I always think about it too, in terms of the the patience we have for what we consume is so low, and not just in the like scrolling, does this catch my eye? does this catch my eye? does this catch my eye? but but also in the sense of like if I went and bought an album, And I didn't like it right away. I would keep listening to it because I had spent my grass cutting money on it, you know, like, and then I would, some I would might find a song that I did like or find something that I liked about some of it. And so just the way that I think creative outputs are consumed is just really different now too. And, and, and I try not to be too moralistic about it and talk about like the good old days, but it does seem like that invitation to feel like you've discovered something that's really out there. I, it was such an exciting feeling. And I just don't know if anyone has that these days or if it's just all kind of on the same playing field. Yeah. 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 And I'm also curious too, because like I said, I've, I've, I've heard people speak to particularly like skate culture as well from your experience. What's the the real connection between skate culture and art because you don't see that bliss and that deep interweaving necessarily with other kinds of sport or other kinds of hobby, but it's it seems like it's it's board design, it's graffiti, it's music, but like they really seems to be all intermeshed in kind of a unique way.
0: Yeah. Well if, if I had to say a very strong conne- connection with skateboarding and art, it mm-hmm. would be that you have to be, well, you don't, I'm, I'll take that back. You don't have to be, but most people that skateboard are creative mm-hmm. in that it's not like you're going out to play baseball and there's all these rules and you abide by the rules and then you get the points that you get at the end. It's a skateboarder you can take them and put them in a parking lot where someone would see nothing, mm. and a skateboard would look around and go, "Wow, I could do an ollie onto that curb, or ooh, look at that banked that banked loading dock. Oh my gosh, I could make I could do this or that." So they're they're, they're like spatially and sculpturally almost like they. They look around and they can—they're—they're ha- they're creative in that way because they can come up with just interact with their environment, and it's not—it's not limited by what other sports are like. These rules or these—this is how you do this, and you have to stay within these parameters. Skateboarding is like wide open, and it's also—it's in my experience, it's always been wide open to whoever wants to do it. Mm. So it's not. You know, it's not just like a bunch of meatheads going to play football or something. It's Mm -hmm. this fits. It's like whatever community that you're in, whatever your skin tone is, whatever your background is, whatever your preference to whatever didn't fucking matter. It's like, you want to go skate? Yeah, let's go skate.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, and
0: that's it. So in in that way, it's creative too. Like you're getting all these different perspectives from all these different people and the, the common thread is that thing that's got the four wheels on it and that's it. Yeah. So so I think that's that's the that's a huge difference in say like any other sport in skateboarding. Yeah,
1: yeah. That's a really a really good point. And as I'm thinking about it too, I know that now there are skate competitions and certain tricks have certain points and it is sort of regulated in this way. But that's fairly recent and I think it really is a creative expression the way something like dance would be where it's like how did that look I think has a huge element in the sort of value that it has within the activity you know it's not just like did you is it something objective like did the ball go through the thing or not you know it's it's a it's an aesthetic judgment
0: yeah yeah and uh, yeah you're absolutely right and I I, I always say that skateboarding thrasher magazine the tricks in the mid mid to early 80s even now but what I can relate to is early mid 80s really it all had the same aesthetic so you know watching lance Mountain do an invert and it just looks like a king cobra flaring out as mm-hmm. you know and going into this contorted thing and just that the style of it it's all lanky and it just like and the way it just rolls back into it had the same aesthetic as like that Cortland Johnson-like carved skull, you know, and it, and the the aesthetic of Thrash Magazine was just kind of like raw thrown together. And it was mm-hmm. new and it was exciting and it, was, it just had all the, the, the same kind of energy. So I think skateboarding now, too, it's so accepted and just wide open. Yeah, it 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 still has like this aesthetic to it where it's just like it's got this aesthetic of freedom where it's just like yeah that dude's like or that person or whoever that is they're having fun doing whatever they're doing. Yeah,
1: yeah, and that from watching like like the best of the best on TV doing things and like the bowl is like they're flying like they're they're just they're flying through the air like a damn bird. Yeah, so the literal freedom. Of, of movement in a three-dimensional space in a way that, yeah, humans don't usually move that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so so you saw printmaking as a 19-year-old yep. in the community college class, and you instantly connected with that look because you'd, you'd been seeing it. You'd been admiring it, like yep. the, the graphic look. And so what comes after that? At what point do you take on printmaking in a serious way?
0: Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this, and I don't want to dwell on it, and I don't want to eat up this podcast with a bunch of it, mm-hmm. but I will say there was a big chunk of time where I got out of everything that I loved doing, and I got into drugs. So mm-hmm. there was a big gap of drug addiction for like a decade. And then once I got cleaned up and I finished up school, I, I you just survived what you survived and you're, you're, you're not dead like some of your friends mm-hmm. and you're, you're here. What are you going to do with your time? Cause that's all you got. You know, it's, it's like whatever else doesn't matter. It's like you, your, your time is really the only thing of value and who you spend it with. Right. So, and how, or how you spend it. So I was like, what do, what do you, what do you want to do with your time here? And it's, it was definitely like art. Like I love Mm. creating and I want to get back. And so I went back and finished up what pieced together, what I kind of the mess I had left behind with an undergrad degree, you know, gotten into printmaking there. And the, the guy that I learned from Ken Daly, he was, he was really great. Went to Old Dominion University in Norfolk and he was super knowledgeable and he was also just very flexible. He was like, yeah, okay, now you know how to do all of the different print methods Hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, you know with him and his guidance I kind of got into doing sculptural stuff and adding the sculptures and having doing those those very first sculptural print things with him and and then just connecting with other people and then eventually I got I had to work a regular job too (laughs) yeah so so I've always I've worked since I was a kid since I was like 12 or 13 years I had I had started a business doing hardwood floors because I did them for a while. So I was doing hardwood floors and I was like, man, I did not get clean and survive all that shit. <laughs> yeah. to do floors. I just didn't. Did, That's not what I'm here for. I, I applied to grad school and I got rejected from everywhere but Pratt Institute, in New mm-hmm. York. And I had never been before. You know, yeah. I was like in Virginia Beach. And then after that, I was a drug addict. And, you know, here I am. I'm cleaned up and I'm ready to roll and I was like wow I'm going to New York and I just went up there and I found a. I was like what am I looking at what's safe and what's not and like everything mm. new and scary you know and uh, so I got I got there and I, I kind of hit the door running like I got an apartment started going to grad school and the next thing I know September 11th happened
1: oh, and, um, wow. and,
0: and here I am in the middle of New York City and there's this horrible terror whatever you believe <laughs> I, I yeah was, Necessarily a terrorist attack, you know, but that's for another. That's a
1: whole nother podcast. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So. So anyway, yeah, that's that's kind of how I just kind of dived into I got in the print program at Pratt and that started meeting all of these people. And I started in, I in first internship I got was with this woman, Kathy Carasio, and she's a total badass. Like she mm. she's had been, she had a print press in New York for over 30 years in Manhattan. And to do that in Manhattan and keep it that long yeah. is saying something. Right. And she did it kind of very DIY and very like she had her collection, her methods of doing things and um, her ways of keeping it going. And uh, she she taught me. I learned a lot from her. Like I learned how to pinch pennies and like how you could get by with like not a lot of money or how and, and you know how to hustle some too because you mm-hmm. could hustle.
1: Yeah, so. that's a huge part of of a project like that alive, which Giant. no one teaches you or tells you.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can't learn that shit in school. I learned some of it on the street, but <laughs> when I was getting in trouble, but from Kathy, it was like, okay, this is legitimate. So, in, uh, in, and then I, I, I got an internship. I, I was an instructor there named Bob Blanton, mm-hmm. and he was teaching a graduate silkscreen class. And he, he kept watching me, and he came over to me one day. He goes, hey, do you need a job? Hmm. And I was like, yeah, I want a job. You know like doing this like screen printing he's like mm-hmm. yeah so he owns brand x editions in new york and at the time it was down by kind of near kind of between chinatown and tribeca and i remember going in there and i'm like wow like this is this is printmaking. Mm-hmm. you know what are we doing we're printing a chuck clothes print how many colors is that 210 mm-hmm. what how big is it it's like <laughs> five by eight feet are you fucking kidding me like all right. So that, and that's like right when I'm getting, getting there to New York, like after September 11th, stuff calmed down and grad school got going. And I was doing some construction work to pay bills and doing full-time grad class, And then I'm working at Brand X and interning with Kathy. So I was doing a lot of stuff. And within a couple months, he had me printing those Chuck Close prints. He's like, you're going to print these. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I don't know. He's like, yeah, yeah. you're going to do it, you know? And you had to, I remember you had to, the, the sheets of paper, like I said, they're huge. they are like, you know, almost five by eight feet or five. And they're on this table and you had to, you didn't have like two people moving the, the paper. You had to kick air under it and float it over <sighs> to the vacuum table. And if you hit the edge of the table, that's it. Right. That print's fucked. So if yeah. you did, if you had 110 layers on that print, when it got dinged on the edge of the table, it's done. And those prints were selling for 35 K a piece. I was so nervous. I was just like, oh, I don't know, Bob, I don't know about this. He's like, yeah, you're going to do it. So, and I remember like floating that first one over. I'm like, okay, it's going, it's going, we went, bam, hit dink, creased right across that Chuck print. I'm like, oh my God. And I looked at him and he was like looking at me. And I was like, oh, he's going to fucking kill me. And, and he knows like 10 different types of martial arts. I forgot to say that. He's like a real ninja. Oh, I didn't
1: know that about Bob.
0: Yeah. Oh my God. He's like, he's he's competed world worldwide like oh he'll gosh. fuck you up oh so anyway gosh. i float the next one over bam Dink it <laughs> like, i'm like oh god he's looking at me like and he and he looks at me he goes don't do that again
1: <laughs>
0: I'm like, oh god so and then and then i got it the third one i got it and then from that point on i did two of those big additions like one of them went into it, you know there was a met retrospective of for Chuck Close and they had we pulled stage proof. So every 10 colors you would have a print leading up to the finished print. Oh, cool. And uh, and uh, I can tell you a funny Chuck Close story if you want.
1: I would love to hear one. Yeah. All
0: right. So so I'm working at Brand X Editions and, and Chuck Close come he keeps coming in and and like the guy they say this is Dennis, he's making your prints basically, like he's mixing your colors and printing your prints. And he would never remember me. And he mm-hmm. came in dozens of times introduce them to me. And, and then I remember I was quit. I was about to leave Brand X and he, we had finished in a, the edition. and Chuck Close comes in, got introduced again, doesn't remember me. And he, so we had three tables lined out. We had the finished prints. We had the print and the table for the finished prints. So we're moving them. Mm-hmm. Me and my friend Jay are moving from table to table. So we're taking a print. I'm taking the two corners up here and he's taking the two corners at the bottom. We're moving in front of Chuck Close and he signs the print and then we move it to the next table. And we get through about half the stack and I look at him and, and I'm thinking, I'm like, man, this motherfucker's is going to remember me this time. <sighs> I don't care what it takes. He's going to remember my name or at least my face. Right. So I pinned the print down with my thumbs. So my friend Jay could move the next one. And a few seconds went by and Chuck Close kind of looks up and Bob looks at me like, what are you doing? Uh-huh. And I, I looked at Chuck Close, and I said, hey, man, when are you going to stop doing all these big heads and maybe try something different for a change like some cows or something? And I said cows or something because we were doing some Alex cats, cows that were all Okay, over yeah. Me. And he looked at me for a few seconds and Bob looked like he was about to shoot laser beams out of his eyes at me and vaporize me right there. And then, so there was this weird silence and then we just kind of went back to doing the thing. And I was like, he'll remember me this time. So then fast forward like seven years later, te- almost 10 years later, really, I'm driving and I'm listening to NPR uh-huh. and, there, and there's, a th- there's, a, there's a special on Chuck Close and they're talking about how he has this disease basically where he can't recognize faces Uh And I'm like, and I'm thinking to myself, Dennis, you are such a fucking egotistical piece of shit to think that this guy should remember your face anyway.
1: Uh And he's got
0: this this disability where he can't recognize your face. (laughs) And I just felt like such a dumbass. But that's the story.
1: Oh, my gosh. And then, yeah, they're just like sitting there in the car. And like, you're the only one in the universe who like knows that story like you're the only one who like knows what was going on inside you and you're just like sitting there with that knowledge
0: yeah it's It's
1: rough that is rough i feel like the universe loves to humble us like that like
0: (laughs) over and over again
1: over and over and over that like at least i know that for me like the second i think i deserve this you know the universe has to come in and be like actually A whole bunch was going on you didn't know about because you're not the center of the universe. And I'm like, ah damn, you know, every time. Yeah, every time. Oh, that's so cool. I actually had Bob on the podcast like years ago and got to hear about Brandags and and printing for for Jeff Koons and talked a little bit of Chuck Close. But yeah, that's so funny. He did not mention that he has competed in the deadly arts around the world. (laughs) Didn't come up, but that's that's great
0: yeah, yeah I, I'm so very good I call him every now and then and he's very he's very much a mentor at that time mm. and he taught me all kinds of stuff so.
1: yeah yeah he was great he was pretty early on I think he was like an early kind of big get like one of like these artists and artisans that I just was really freaked out to interview because I was like well, I'm, I'm, I'm new with this <laughs> but he was so nice he was so easy to talk to and and yeah. just had such a cool story yeah cool well that's I didn't know you worked for him. That's really neat. And so when you were when you were leaving, at this point, are you really focusing on your own practices a lot? Like and what you're making? Are you are you showing? Are you starting to do community stuff? Where uh, this kind of like transition from brand X into what goes practice at that point?
0: Yeah. It, so so I left because I had I graduated from Pratt Institute. Mm-hmm. And they hired me right when I graduated, so so I taught there for almost a decade, and I also had gotten my my gotten a student stuff on my own on my own time, not like in grad school. So I was starting to get a little things in New York, and definitely the the skateboard world. Like I had gotten an email from Antihero in San Francisco, and they're like, "Hey, do you want to?" We saw some of your prints that you gave this this woman that owns shop in Brooklyn named Amy Gunther and she's her works out here. And we saw this print and we want to know if you want to do some graphics for us. And I told you my history with yeah. skateboarding and seeing those kind of like influent influential things I had seen. And I was like, this is a joke. This isn't real, <laughs> you know? And then I was like, what? You? Uh, yeah. And the guy's like, yeah, you want to do some, a series of boards? And I was like, fuck, yeah, I want to do a series of boards, you know? And I was mm-hmm. like, no way. Because for me, I always say like, that's like a show at the Guggenheim. It's like, totally. I was so stoked. And I, I did the, the the graphics and they were happy. And I had been out of the loop because of, because of addiction stuff. And just because I was getting older. And But hero is a big deal. And once those boards came out, I started getting all these other companies were reaching out to me like Volman. Eventually it was mm. like, Hey, do you want to do a limited edition shoe? And you, and I was like, what shoe? <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Like I never set out to do any shoes. I'm just like making prints, you know? Yeah. And, but ended up it, that was a weird thing too. But, but yeah, it, it, that kind of evolved and, and, and eventually the teaching was getting in the way of the studio practice yeah. To answer your question about like how I got into like the you know, like things or sculptural things or how it moved past prints, just doing prints and working with, you know, the community. The the very first thing I ever did was Jeffrey Dite used to do this art parade in New York and it went down West Broadway and it was really cool. Like it was mm-hmm. just like it was all artists would just come up with stuff. And this year he was taking submissions for it. And I was like, man, I'm going to do this. I'm going to submit to this thing and I'm going to make whatever it takes to do it. I'm going to do it. Mm. And, and I was reading some Nordic mythology at the time. And I came up with this whole story. I kind of uh, kind of rewrote the ending of Ragnarok on um, my, how, and I had it Fenris's sister, come up from her underworld and find her brother's carcass on the battlefield and resurrect him. And a wolf bat was born. So he could fly <sighs> the earth and destroy the gods, right? So so it was a rewritten kind of ending that I came up with. And I proposed this whole thing of how I would make this giant wolf bat and bring it down West Broadway with these Nordic army, Hell's Army. Mm-hmm. Not H-E-L-L, H-E-L, if you don't know. Like she ran the underworld in Nordic mythology. She's one of Loki's children. But it was her, her kind of... Her, it was her army and this giant wolf bat, her brother Fenris, mm. that had been resurrected. So, so I built it. I built this big wolf bat. It was like the size of a car and it had these movable wings. And I had two drummers that I that I knew that got on the back and were kind of facing each other playing. And everybody was covered in fake blood and fur <sighs> boots and these masks that I made that were print covered. And it was awesome like mm. it was it was killer it, it didn't look like anything else on the parade either it was like everything else is like bright colors and it's uh-huh. like ah, it's massive. and then like we're coming down the street and it's like <laughs> it's pretty heavy metal you know and but people loved it and, and it and it actually got it got mentioned in the, in the new york times very cool with the parade so and then that changed that changed things too, and I remember at the end of that, some of my friends taking their masks off and looking at their face, and it looked like they were like years younger. Mm-hmm. I was like, what is that? That's so weird, you know. And it was yeah. like, what it was is they they had dropped all their fears, and they they could just be free because they had this mask, and they were part of this bigger thing, right? So they felt safe to just like. I mean, people were acting kind of savage and blah, and it, it was rad. And I, at the end of it and everyone was kind of glowing. I'm like, man, I got to do this again. That's beautiful. And, and I really liked the idea of because, because you know, I, it, it was my first experience in New York too. you know, I'd galleries and I'm like, man, this is so stuffy. And like, I feel mm-hmm. like I don't feel welcome here. And I don't feel like the people that out on the street would feel welcome in here. Yeah. It's like a, only certain people are welcome in here. And, and I didn't want that. I wanted to make some stuff that anybody could participate in, walk up. And that's how the processions kind of got going was like, man, I want somebody to be able to make their own mask and just like be this person or character and participate in this parade, whatever we were doing, whatever happening or ceremony, and just have that experience like because you can't get that in a gallery. You know, yeah. like you'll remember that experience. You'll remember setting that Viking ship on fire mm-hmm. and watching it burn. Or you'll remember setting off fireworks in the middle of Chelsea, going the wrong way down 10th Avenue against the cabs with the big biking shit. Ch- you remember that shit. <laughs> you might not remember walking into what was on the wall in that stuffy gallery that you didn't feel welcome. So I started doing the performative things and the sculptures, and it was great. And I, I still love, love doing that stuff, and I feel like I'm constantly learning with each different group of people that I work with and mm-hmm. you talk about like the humble pie it's like I'm constantly eating that humble pie because I'll you know I'll, I'll let my ego will take the steering wheel for a second and then something will happen I'll be like wow wow man like how how rad and almost spiritual was that mm. you know so yes it's I don't know if I answered your question or if I just know I,
1: I I I really love everything that you were we're talking about and and I for me I mean it sounds so much like a spiritual experience you know and and the way I know everyone has you know very much their own definitions of, of such things but it's that kind of transcendence and community I feel like like that's that's where God lives like, God as it is useful to you, right? Like anyone listening, but it's like that that connection between people, that feeling of abandoning the ego, abandoning the self, abandoning the ticker tape narrative in your head of who you are and how you need to look and what you need to do and where you're trying to go and to be present, and yeah. to be like did you say feral i think was the, like a word that you use like yeah, i think yeah. that, that that sounds deeply spiritual to me and 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 gathering in ritual to incite that experience is i can't think of a more ancient human practice right. like that that idea of if we get together and we do these things that are outside of our normal routine we're able to transcend something is right. is very, very old and yeah. ancient and beautiful. So yeah. I, I loved everything you just said about it. Yeah. Yeah. And and so the a few times you mentioned this this connection to your work and, and Nordic mythology. And so of course you think of Nordic mythology and you think of the the Nordic countries, which is where, where my people are from and where my cousins still live. And then I also think, of course, of like Norwegian death metal, right? Like, so there's like, I feel like there's this this really interesting kind of tertiary connection between all these sort of cultural points, between like ancient Nordic pagan ritual and metal and skateboarding and art. And and so when Nordic mythology kind of come into your influencing what you wanted to produce.
0: Well, I can't say that it, it's only nordic mythology like i I like stories and Mm. and i always say like how do i want to say this like growing up in in my home it wasn't i wasn't like encouraged to hey check out this this novel or read this story time and so a lot of the the storytelling and stuff that i was into was star wars and people laugh at that or whatever but man that shit is deep like it's (laughs) it's 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 good and it's a classic story good and evil talk about some spiritual stuff and it's like and it's also like is there actually good and evil or is it just you're 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 kind of learning from both experiences and you know just it's 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 like a whole thing right so like any kind of storytelling guar i always talk about Mm. the band guar (laughs) you like Guar? yeah absolutely I mean, if if you look at what Guar has done, and there's a, they just came out with a new documentary. I think everyone should watch because I've been saying this for fucking years. <laughs> is they are like one of the geniuses of our time because they've managed to do what they're doing for over thirty years, mm-hmm. over thirty. Like I think it's getting closer to forty. But it's they they've they've they are interactive with the audience. They make their own costumes. They make they have an ongoing narrative that has been changing and growing for over thirty years, like a his fucking Bible. If you wanted to, like, yeah. it's where did these characters come from, and then what happened, and then what happened, and you have all this documentation. You have all these characters. You have all this history. It's interactive with the audience. It has music. It has they do their own comics, their own videos, their own everything. They work with every single medium. It's it's interactive, it's collaborative, you know, they're, they're, they're bouncing ideas, which is not easy to do with Mm -hmm. that many artists, you know, and, and it, and it's grown and morphed into what it is now. And it's, it's insane. I think it's but it's all storytelling and it's all like all those guys are, are they're not it's not like they're dumb dumbs like the insane clown posse or something mm. they're 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 smart like they're doing social commentary up on stage or they're, they're seeing stuff that's happening in the world and society and politics my god this is fucking disgusting and then they're regurgitating it back to you in a disgusting way mm. it's it, it I think they're genius I think yeah. what they what they have is amazing. So and getting back to like the mythology or the storytelling, I love stories. I love storytelling. I love mythology and I believe in a lot of different things. And I think like when you get into religion or mythology, it's there it's all it's all talking about the same thing. When you right. get down to the core of it, especially with religion, it's just like it's it's someone trying to describe exactly what you were saying earlier about that that moment when you release your ego and you're just there in the moment and you're feral and you're free and you're just Mm. experiencing life. And I think like, that's why I'm drawn to not only Nordic mythology was just at the time. Right. Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And and the and the metal just kind of stuck. Like, yeah, (laughs) it's like, well, your stuff's kind of it's got wolves and it's like high energy and it's this that. Well, let's play some metal music. I mean, I'm totally open to shaking it up. It's just kind of like the metal stuck. Yeah. In the in the Nordic mythology, people grab onto that, and I and I see why. But there's 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 all kinds of stuff that I that I have experienced or read or my like my. The, my blind grandfather I don't talk about this a lot and I think maybe it's because they they weren't supposed to talk about it but he was native he was he was Cherokee and I remember my grandmother if I was I remember her doing this or something was going on and she would I remember she would she'd have a, a cigarette like some tobacco mm-hmm. and she'd say something kind of to the tobacco and then she'd bl- she'd blow it on me right and I, I didn't think about it at the time but like that's that's not, (laughs) that's not in the Bible. Hey, that's not not our Baptist upbringing. What's that? You know? Yeah. So I've definitely read up on some, some, some native culture I've participated in and some ceremonies I've been to, to Peru and worked with like, I've had these different experiences and it absolutely influences the work, but so does Guar and so does, Mm-hmm. all these other things. And, and like I was trying to describe earlier, I think all of them have a, a, a if you're paying attention, mm-hmm. even like watching this Guara documentary, I don't mean to like get hung up on them, but I, I'm watching it and I'm listening to it and I'm watching these guys get emotional and listen to how they were and how they've they move through things now. And it's man, it's like, wow, they had an, a huge spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. We're like, it, and, you know, we talked about ego earlier. Sometimes ego has got to drive the ship to get you to where you're going. Right. Mm-hmm. So it, it gets you to that place. But then then it's got to get out of the way because to get the lesson. Right. Or to get the experience and go, oh, wow, now I get it. Yeah. yeah. But but you had to be there first. You had to get there so that the ego had to drive you like, I'm good enough to do this and blah, 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 blah,
1: Yeah. And,
0: Get there, and then you have the experience, like, "Wow, that wasn't me at all. That was like way bigger than me." Yeah. So yeah.
1: No, I, I think that's that's a really good point. I really connect with that idea of of it's this this cycle of of the ego being a little being the engine, right? But yeah. it's and that's it keep, it's sort of what keeps you moving forward. And then I think a lot of spiritual seeking and also art making seeking comes down to the moments in that ego does fall back. And there's so many artists from Michelangelo and all kinds of ones that that speak to I'm a vessel for something bigger, like in my making I'm, I'm a, I'm not the, the spark of the creation or I look, maybe I'm the spark of the creation, but the actual making is something that happens kind of beyond me and like comes from the universe or God or, or the collective unconscious or whatever it is. And so, yeah, it's, they're very, very interconnected. And I think practices like you have that involve gathering of people and that collective shared experience, like it just heightens that it heightens it in a visceral way, and then also kind of in a metaphysical way as well, I think. Yeah. And, and when you're doing the, the collective works, the second you bring in one other person, it's going to alter it, let alone bringing in many more people. So right. what's that balance like for you between like, I want to see this manifest in this way, but also understanding that all other humans are completely unpredictable and uncontrollable? Yeah.
0: I think the best example of this that I've ever had, right? Like what what you're describing is I had built this, this 30, it was actually two 30 foot Viking ships. And I had a show at a gallery and we had these two Viking ships downstairs. And and I had gone week, a week before and kind of mapped out like a parade session through Chelsea in Manhattan, like a safe, what I thought was going to be a safe route. And I was like, well, this is how this is going to go. And bop, 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 bop. I had it all mapped out in my head and I handed out like 150 battle axes (laughs) to participants. And we started parading this Viking ship down the street. And I started to pull it towards where it was intended to go. And the huge crowd of people pulled it the opposite direction. And I, I couldn't do anything about it. And I was like, well... I guess that's just how it's supposed to go. And so we went and we went the wrong way down 10th Avenue and there's cabs swerving out of the way of this giant ship and these people with battle axes. And there's, (laughs) there's a drummer inside and he's wailing on the drums and there's fireworks shooting off of the ship and bouncing off of the buildings. And it was nuts. And I was just like, okay, well, it's out of my hands. Like, I, I can only set the stage. And I feel like a lot of the times that's what ends up happening is like I can I can set the stage and drum up the energy like I'll drum it all up and I'll get people excited and the stuff. And then it's out of my hands, really. Like it's like I don't have any control over anyone else or what they are yeah. do, what they do. But it it has knock on wood to this point has always worked out in a really great way. yeah. In, in an unexpected way, like usually better than I had ever thought mm. it could.
1: Are there any ever any kind of uh, civic consequences? Like, do you get do you get a ticket for driving a Viking ship the wrong way down Tenth Avenue?
0: That was a. It was the weirdest thing. Like, I remember people coming up to me, especially like people that have been in New York for a long, long time, and they they said a couple things. They said, "Man, I haven't seen this energy since like the the." 80s you would say like this is what new york used to be like yeah and i remember another thing was people were saying how do we not get arrested because because yeah we went we didn't only go the wrong way down the street we were lighting off fireworks the whole way there was a drummer inside of it and then the end that was waiting (laughs) blocking the street that broke into a set as we pulled in and then we were lighting off Chinese lanterns that were floating through the buildings as all this was happening and the cops drove by and they looked and they (laughs) rolled real slow and then they just kept going. And I was like, "Whoa, dude! Did we just like open up some kind of portal and they couldn't see us or something? Or what happened?" But that—that's like, oh my gosh! It, mm-hmm.
1: Just like surely they must have a permit for that. Like no one would do that. Like, right. like
0: <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think a similar thing happened in Philadelphia with a when they had an SGC there, know, and, and I built a big ship and we did the procession, invaded this like condo thing, lighting off fireworks, doing the same kind of thing. And I remember these two Philly. Cops walked up and they're sitting there and they're watching. And I kinda of snuck up behind them to see what they were saying. And they watched it for a while and they watched all the fireworks and they watched the skateboarding and they watched all this stuff and, and then the weather and says, Uh, eh, do you see anything? Because nah, let's get out of here. And they both just walked off. And I was like, Wow, that just happened, you know, and it's it, and luckily, knock on wood again, that's 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 the kind of the way these things have gone. I that, that I've ever gotten permission for was the one, <laughs> the one that Ryan put together, and, and it's because Ryan put it together, and it was like done correctly, yeah, and everything was thought of, and it was very considerate. And usually, I'll just kind of ask for forgiveness or just disappear before <laughs> anyone shows up.
1: That's great. That's really great. Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't know if you know, but we're hosting Prince Santa Fe which will be the first year. It's sort of like an offshoot of Print Austin. Oh. And, you know, I don't know if you you know about Zazobra. Have you heard about Zazobra? So Zazobra actually just happened in Santa Fe. And it's a giant, creepy, kind of looks a little bit like Jigsaw sort of puppet that people put everything... like, like like, they want to let go of inside of it on messages oh. and they burn it up and it's this huge thing. So anyway, I'm just saying Santa Fe loves a big wild thing. So if you – it's April next year. So just put oh. – I am just want to throw that out there that we'll be doing things. I know that Huck and Carlos are going to come out for it and a few other people. So it's just – I'm sure you've got lots on your plate. But Santa oh. Fe loves a, a, a big pagan burning yeah. <laughs> already. <laughs>
0: Well, I'm open to all kinds of things. So
1: Cool, cool. We'll, we'll chat. We'll chat. And also part of part of the, the, the theme of some of the interviews I'm doing for this month is just talking about the outlaws, you know, speaking of, of Carlos and, and Huck. And I've been asking people just kind of briefly, what is their person that means? Like, what, what, what is outlaw printmaking?
0: Okay. One thing I didn't mention about New York is when I went to grad school, the department was Very, very set on abstract work, conceptual Mm. work, everything that I was doing, they were saying was garbage, pretty much. Mm. Sometimes in a nice way, and sometimes not. And I was bummed. I was just like, man, you know, because it took me a lot to be there, yeah, to, to get there. And and I, I luckily I met Bill Fick. He was teaching at Pratt, so I became his teaching assistant. And he was like, man, you need to meet. Richard Mock. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I went to Richard's, lived in this old SPCA building. It was like brick face and it was like kind of dingy. And in one corner was his printing press and another corner was his bed. He had a little makeshift kitchen that he had set up. And this guy had been doing politically charged linoleum cuts for the New York Times for over 20 years. Mm. And everywhere you looked, like knee deep were blocks that he had carved throughout his life and I was like this is the fucking real deal. Yeah. This is this is the first real deal artist I've ever met. And he was so generous with his time and he was just telling me all this stuff and he was just like, "Here, try this and try that." And he was like, "Stop listening to what those those people are saying at the school. He's like, "Surround yourself with like-minded people and find yeah. your tribe and people that are supporting the work that you're doing." And ignore that stuff. And I left there, and I felt like a fucking samurai. Like mm-hmm. I was like, man, I got Bill Fick <laughs> on my side. I got Richard Mock on my side, and I'm gonna start collecting my tribe. Yeah. And I remember doing that. And and I remember these stuffy print people that were like, you guys make garbage. You make illustrative work you make your stuff ain't shit. And I remember those people like looking down on us all the time. And uh, and then there was a show that Richard was in and Tom was in and Tony Fitzpatrick and I think Suco, and it was called outlaw printmakers. And, and I remember by that time I had met all these people and, you know, I had known since community college actually I used to hang out with this cousin all the time. But anyway, so, so we all kind of knew each other that show happened. And then the outlaw printmaker thing kind of stuck. So in, so, from my perspective, it was a gathering of this tribe of like-minded people that Richard had suggested come together. Yeah. So that's that's kind of like it, it's not like we're <laughs> we're outlaws, we're <laughs> like, uh, but outlaw in the in the sense that we did what we wanted to do and do what we want to do mm-hmm. with the type of work. And the type of influence that we want, whether it's skateboarding or it's metal or it's whatever the influence is, that's our influence. It didn't come out of a Jansen art history book. And mm-hmm. we don't hear about how you wiped your fucking plate. Like, mm-hmm. it's just this is how we do it. Just I can respect what you do. Just give me a little respect for what I do. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that to me. There's your answer. That's that's the outlaw.
1: I think that's favorite. great. But yeah, I think that that really captures my a lot of my understanding of why outlaw printmakers became a thing, and and was a, was a needed counter to a really narrow definition of what quote-unquote good or acceptable printmaking was. Yeah. That's great. Well, Dennis, we've, we've reached our hour recording mark, so I just, okay. I've just got left to ask you if there's anything on the future that you want to plug, you want people to look for, and then also where can they find you and follow you to see upcoming stuff? Okay.
0: Well, I'm going to be going down to Oso Bay and Corpus Christi for that Oso Bay biannual that Ryan and Allie's putting together. And then a Howl of Woof Bat's coming up. So I'll be in Chicago for that with the big puppet stuff. And then the I'll be doing in Oregon directly after that. So, And if you want to follow what I do, you can go to an Instagram or wolfbat.com is my website.
1: Cool. Yep. Well, I'll put those in the show notes. And thank you so much for the chat. This has been really fun. I
0: appreciate the appreciate you reaching out and doing this.
1: And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Carlos Hernandez. We'll talk about his incredible career as a poster artist, collaborating with his childhood hero, Ed Big Daddy Raw, hosting some of the most wild and crazy print events out there, and Burning Bones Press. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.